Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm Phil Dobby, and welcome once again to the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. Today, house prices. We often hear that the reason house prices are so high is because there isn't enough supply. So fix the supply issue and houses will suddenly become affordable. But is that the case? Does supply have any influence on the prices we pay for our houses? That's today on the Debunking Economics podcast. Now, this uh, might shock you if you're not used to Australian house prices. A narrow, fairly run-down two-bedroom terrace in Paddington in Sydney's eastern suburbs sold last week for $1.5 million. And that was seen as being a bit of a bargain. Just down the road, a four-bedroom terrace sold for $2.7 million. Over £1.5 million, that is, for a terraced house on 152 square metres of land. Basically, a, a small paved courtyard for a garden. £1.5 million. That's just 18 times the average wage for a terraced house. Now, Paddington is in a city, so let's travel to the to the far north of Sydney, to Warunga. Half an hour by train, a one-bedroom unit sold for just $660,000. That's more like it. It is on a very busy road, but hey, it's only eight and a half times the average wage for a one-bedroom apartment on the outskirts of the city. In fact, one of the reasons I moved, well, my family moved out of Sydney was because we just found that Sydney was too expensive. And one of the reasons given is that housing supply has just not kept pace with demand. So, Steve, I mean, there is a tendency, isn't there, when we look at housing, to treat it like any other product. So if prices rise, it's because there's not enough supply. So is there any truth in that argument? Well, it's not so much the supply side that I find frustrating and how people think about the housing market. Uh, it's the demand side. But I'll just to talk about the supply but side. When it's for you, do you yeah. see why I'm raising this? Because invariably, this is what politicians oh, and yeah. a lot of people say. Oh, it's because well, it's, there's not it's, enough it's, houses. If we, if, we, if we can just have more houses, prices will go down. Yeah, well, the funny thing is that when politicians say that, the last thing they'll ever do is build public housing. Yeah. The one thing that they could actually do is public housing. They say, well, there's not enough supply. Okay, why don't you create some public housing? Oh, can't do that. That would interfere with the market. But, guys, the market is not working, even according to you. Mm. Oh, we can't interfere with it, though. Well, what the hell are you doing in politics then? <laughs> um, so, you know, this, 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 this is one of the little – Nobody seems to ask them that on the media. I'd, I'd like to see a journalist actually ask one of these politicians who whinges about supply being the problem. Yeah. Uh, because what I, they always say is, oh, well, one of the reasons they say supply is a problem is simple. It's somebody else's problem. <laughs> but, you know, but you can see why it's an easy sell because I've been to auctions in Australia and I've seen the hunger from people bidding desperate to secure a house. Mm. And, you know, you, you do stand around and think, well, if only there was more houses in this neighbourhood, maybe, uh, maybe things would be a little less ferocious. Well, that's it's not. That's not the real problem with the housing market as much as what's the demand. And because the demand, look, if, for example, if I told you the price of carrots is going to rise tomorrow, would you go out and buy more carrots? No. 
Exactly. No. If I, I told you houses are going to rise tomorrow, would you buy more houses? Yeah, well, maybe I wouldn't. That is fundamentally the problem, isn't it? That, that, that is fundamentally the problem. Okay. We, we, we have a, we're not, it's one of the two fundamental issues of the problem on the demand side of housing. Uh, people will go out and buy a house because they expect the price to rise. Yeah. And nobody goes and buys carrots because they expect the house to rise. A couple of reasons for that. One is you can substitute something else apart from carrots. Uh, it's rather hard not to live in a house. You know, you can substitute an apartment for in a house, but you can't you can't substitute a shoebox in the middle of the road for a house unless you're in a Monty Python comedy skit. So it's it, it's the lack of substitutability of the product itself. You've got to buy housing, and then it's being treated both as an asset and as something which even to live in, uh, if you don't secure it now, it'll be more expensive in the future. That expectation is built into the experience we've had in the last forty or fifty years. But in fact, if you'd been in Holland. In I'm only guessing the actual years now. I'll, let's see if I can look it up while we talk. But if you'd been in Holland between, say, 1810 and 1860, you would have said, you're mad to buy a house today. Wait a, wait a month, it'll be cheaper because houses across that period, time period fell yeah. in real terms. And there's long-term, very, very long-term data in a wonderful thing called the Herengratch Canal Index. And I'll just... Actually, I'll, I'll type in my browser. I'll probably be able to find it on the web. While the, you're doing that, while, yeah, you, while, yeah. you, while you're coming up with those figures, I mean, in yeah. theory, if prices rise for anything, you'd expect that supply <coughs> would increase. If prices rise, people say, oh, there's an opportunity to make, make money here. Let's produce more of widget A or let's sell more houses. If people are prepared to pay more, you'd expect production would increase. If there was, you know, except for the fact that there's a limit to the land available, Surely that would happen. So why doesn't that happen no, with well, housing? There's, two, there's, there's at least two reasons why it won't happen. One is, one is that houses take a lot longer to build, though that actually implies there'll be some extremely exciting stuff happening uh, as we start getting into 3D printing of uh, yeah. of, of houses. And that's like you can print a house in a day with 3D technology. So that, uh, that, that could be a lot of fun in terms of upsetting a particular Apple cart. But the other is the location of housing. And this is something which, in a sense, you can make a Ricardian uh, type analysis because if you live in the um, centre of a very very small town, let's call it Londinium, and Londinium grows and grows and grows, and it gets to be enormously expensive to commute from the from the periphery of Londinium to the centre, uh, and there are train lines being built around as well, which you didn't build, of course. Uh, but they just have to be built by the state to make it possible to get around. You benefit from all that. Yeah. So that that the, the locational aspect of land itself makes it uh, extremely difficult to. So, uh, so governments don't help here either, do they? So, for example, you know, you hear the argument in places like Sydney, for example, which is I think worse than London. You know, if you don't work, if you if you're not living and working in Sydney, then or or similarly in Melbourne, uh, then you haven't really got an opportunity to work anywhere else because although the trains are cheaper they're also incredibly slow and there's congestion on the roads or the roads just don't exist so if you if you work in london if you work in sydney you've got to live in sydney in effect so that puts the pressure on the house prices there's no government policy to say well okay let's look at some sort of regional distribution of uh, of jobs i guess because that again would be interfering with the markets well it's a common if the market's not working you interfere with it okay yeah, yeah. that should be the, that should be the bottom line of the way people think about it of course they don't um, um, but it, it, the one of the problems about the whole idea that you can actually create a, um, a new um, uh, regional centre 
and make that work effectively is that part of where our industrial and economic growth has come from is by aggregations of peoples in cities. Yeah. And once a city gets a certain, you know, the city cities, this one is actually a very interesting book called Scale uh, that I recommend people take a look at to talk about the, the, the number of mathematical regularities you can find both in human society and biological growth and so on. And he, he points out that the, the author of the book points out that firms normally die within a, 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 the maximum lifespan for a firm is something of the order of half a century, maybe a century at best. So you know, if a corporations is born and die over time, that's one of the regularities find in the data. Cities do not buy, die, are not born and die over time. They, born, buy, they, they, they are born and they continue growing most of the time through all sorts of calamities that might affect the industries in them or the, um, or the region they're in. So, you know, Rome went through a bit of a catastrophe for a while there, but Rome is now one of the world's biggest cities. London has grown all the way through despite all the ups and downs it's had with populations and the Black Plague and even the city turning up, pardon me. Um, so all these cities have a, a tendency to continue growing no matter what. Mm. So the whole idea you can start a city uh, somewhere else and make it grow itself is relatively naive in terms of how cities have actually developed. You simply have to say, well, cities are going to exist. Well, I've tried uh, it. I mean, in the UK, they huh? developed cities like Milton Keynes, for example. Which what were, an exciting would... place that is. I <laughs> I know, been, have you yeah. been there yet? Have <laughs> you been there? I've seen the concrete cows. I love the fact they have a concrete cow so you can just see what it's like to live <clears> in the countryside uh, so long as you realise it's not moving. Okay, made of concrete. But I, mean, but, I mean, economists have argued that cities should grow. So, for example, you know, we should build more housing in inner city Sydney we should uh, or on on rail lines because the most efficient way of getting people to and from work is not for them to be uh, is not urban sprawl it's higher density housing closer into cities and that that you know that's going to solve all the problems but of course that just puts the pressure on the land values and pushes house prices up well the whole thing that's the whole thing what is actually causing the value to rise is it what the individual owner of the house is doing or is it what the society is doing around that owner in a, in a network effect out of interacting with many 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 other people and the answer is it's the network effect it's the as as towns become den- more densely populated and you are living in a, in a prime piece of real estate, the price rises because of where you are living, not because of what you've done with it. So this is the argue that Henry George made many, many decades ago, over a century ago, for land, land value tax. And the Georges, the still continuing Georges groups, are saying we have to have land value tax to mean that rather than the capital appreciation going to the owner of the land, because, for example, a new railway line goes through, like let's call it Queen Queen Elizabeth Railway Line, for example. Yeah. Let's say that it was driven through the centre of its town. Let's call it London. Um, then people on that on that line will get an increase in their land values, and they'll be happily talking about it at restaurants, how wise they were to buy yeah. a location. But we're where, all paying for it. Yeah, we're all paying for it. So what you do is say, well, okay, we're going to tax that land. Now, of course, that itself has all sorts of problems. One of them is that people who find themselves asset rich and cash poor have to sell their property. So it ends up getting a, a politically unpalatable side to it in terms of how people react to the, to the genuine impact of that being done. Right. Uh, but they'll get a good it, price for their house because their house will be worth more because it's got this new rail line close by. But they've got to move somewhere else, which they don't want to do. Mm. And, uh, and you know, I've, 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 I've tried friends in that, in that situation who um, – if they were first forced to pay the taxes that would be levied on the property they're in, then they'd have to leave the community they're part of. And this is where you start to say, well, what's, what, what is, you know, where's the primacy in the community or in the, or in the, uh, the economy. And I'm, I'm rather torn on that front, frankly, I think, uh, 
You know, if you, if you imagine all the old uh, artists that used to live around King's Cross in Sydney being driven out by towers built in King's Cross, uh, what you end up is you, ha- you have accommodation for people, you lose the culture that existed there beforehand. So none of this stuff is straightforward. But again, it's all focusing upon the supply side. And the error is it, the supply side wouldn't matter anywhere near as much if it wasn't for the demand side. Yeah. Even if you draw a conventional neoclassical upward sloping supply curve, which of course is bullshit, but that's not the story. Um, so if you draw it you, you, and you say it's really steep because it's very, very hard to move the supply curve, then what gives you the volatility is demand. Right. Okay. I, you, I, if you can, if you can modify demand, you can you, you can actually fall very steeply down that supply curve again. And yet, you know, demand is. I mean, we hear about demand being huge, but is it? Because in fact, if we, I think that, and we have to obviously split that demand into two: those people looking for their own home, and and those people who are in the uh, the buy to the buy to let market. But home mm. ownership in England is now the lowest it's been for 30 years. The number of people mm. renting has doubled since 2004, but the number of people who are living in their own home, the lowest it's been for three decades. So the and demand is not huge. And this is the, the real thing that's made houses unavoidable uh, on, is on the demand side again, and that is it's classically visible in the English data. It's the deregulation of housing finance back in 1982. Mm. That is what, if you, if you wanted, you know, if you wanted looking for a smoking gun, uh, this is the big birther of smoking guns when it comes to the data. And if people like this, I'll just actually get my little old, uh, actually, <laughs> I've got to make up a set of long-term charts I put on my Prof. Steve King website. But the most outrageous data piece that I uh, did in, in doing the most recent book, Can We Avoid Another Financial Crisis, was graphing the UK's long-term private debt and aggregate of both, of both household debt and, and corporate debt flat line between 1880 and 1980. There was no tendency uh, for that to rise or fall. It, it, it rose and fall in booms and slumps, obviously, but there was no secular trend until 1982. And yep. then it went from 55% of GDP to 190% of GDP over 30 years under Maggie Thatcher and, and um, pardon me, um, what's his name? Tony, Tony Blair. <laughs> I'd like to forget him, but anyway, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. The prices, the debt levels just trebled, almost quadrupled. And that was evenly split between the household sector and the financial sector. So household debt trebled effectively. Right. And yet we've still got, because, I mean, maybe, I mean, they're obviously, they're obviously the, the, the two are linked because it's pushing house prices up, which means oh, it's fewer, a people, fewer people can afford it, which is why we've got the lowest level of debt in 30 years. But that's quite telling, isn't it? On the one side, we've got the, number, the amount of money being borrowed increasing, but the number of people borrowing it is decreasing because we've got fewer people buying. Well, yeah, when that you're getting basically you know, a very only a small, a tiny amount can actually afford the debt that's involved anymore. Yeah. But that debt's what's driven up the prices. Like, you know, I've still got to finish. This is one of the many things I've got to finish. Um, it's run a couple of years behind on this damn thing because working with Paul Omrond and um, and and Ricard, he's a, a, I can't think of Ricard's first first name, but a, a, a statistician. We did an analysis of the relationship between change in housing credit and change in house prices. Because part of my logic for a long time has been that what drives house prices uh, is change in new mortgages. And the, the logic is quite simple. I can put it, we've done a mathematical version in this paper, and that's what we've fitted to data. And it, and it screamingly comes out supporting my argument that demand drives house prices, not supply. But um, the equation starts by saying, what's the, what's the flow of demand per uh, per year in terms of like average houses. Well, it's the, it's the new mortgages divided by the price level. 
because you, you don't buy, you know, you don't buy houses with existing mortgage debt. It's got to be change in mortgage debt that gives you the monetary demand. Then you divide that by the price level and you've got the flow of demand for, you know, physical, the abstract house, the flow of demand for houses per year. So you've got a relationship between a more, a new mortgage debt which is change in, change in mortgages, let's say new mortgages divided by the price level. So it's change in new mortgages that gives you change in the price level. And the question then is which drive which? Does change in price level cause people to go take out new mortgages or does change in mortgage debt cause prices to rise? It's the latter. Mm, because emphatically the latter. Well, but that assumes that people are saying, oh, well, look, I've got this money available, therefore I'm going to pay whatever price I can based no, on the money that no. I have available, rather than actually saying, well, how much is this house worth? People surely are not going to pay more than they think a property is worth. Have you been smoking without telling <laughs> me? <laughs> no, well, of course they bloody will do that every damn day, mate. I know, but it's... You're I not mean, becoming it, it, a neoclassical it, it, economist, I'm not. Me. I'm not, but it is a rhetorical question, isn't it? Why would people... <laughs> why, why would people pay... But simply put, why do people do if you think a house is overvalued, why would you pay that amount of money? Why wouldn't well, you that's, just? That's when the market starts to collapse. When people start to think that, that the market can rise astronomically, when people believe the price is going to continue rising, and this is the positive, the other side of it. You're willing to take them part. There's a bit of hammering going on in a local house here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and more uh, houses being built. Yeah, no, this is the heart of Amsterdam, mate. They're not they're probably knocking at some new piece of furniture somewhere. Amsterdam has um, probably nothing to do with furniture. What you've got is people. <laughs> buying because they expect price to rise so there's an expectational side to it as well now if we if you could remove that expectation that prices will rise uh from people's behavior then they wouldn't go and be going and borrowing the money to lever it up and at the same time this is where banks are an outrageously important part of this uh you know banks in america ended up lending people 120 percent of the price of a property and that's you can you can got to, I think Northern Rock was doing the same thing in the UK, and there are, a similar thing is happening in Australia as well. So what banks are saying, we'll give you 1.2 times as much money as is needed to buy the house right. on the on the current. Well, bang, you you pay you know 1.15 times as much, and you have the 0.05 left over for the furniture. Uh, it's that monetary demand which is driving up prices. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens from here on in in the UK then. I think Australia's a bit different because Australia just uh, continues on blithely as though uh, the rest of the world doesn't exist. But house prices in the UK are falling. There's home so track. They are, in, they are in Australia as well, and right. quite substantially. Yeah, so home track says the discount, the, the, the difference between the asking price for a property and the price it actually gets sold for has gone from 0.5% in 2014 to 4% across the UK on average now, and the gap in inner London is 10%. So uh, less of a willingness to pay those figures. So, so what's changed? We've suddenly hit reality. Well, yeah, and it's partly because with that level of leverage people have right now, it's very, very fragile to some any worry about increasing interest rates, which is happening at the moment as well. Mm. And what you've got is again very inappropriate supply being developed. I mean, the, one of the one of the arguments again in the UK uh, is that there was such a belief in luxury housing, and because this is totally speculative purchases, and often by non-domestic buyers as well that was driving up the not just the demand for housing but also the type of housing being constructed yeah we're mainly building luxury houses which are price levels where in fact the market has not gone there the foreign buyers for whatever reasons are no longer buying into the uk market maybe the speculators and let's remember they're speculators they're not uh, they're not geniuses uh, the speculators building those properties in the expectation the future of that foreign demand growing 
radically has not happened. So we've got lots and lots of empty housing where they can't afford, if they sold it to the price the market could actually bear, then the prices would collapse and they would, they would, they would, they would manifest the losses they've actually made on paper already. Right, and this so gets down to our, this gets down to our expectation, doesn't it? So maybe mm. that's another part of why we're we're paying mm. more. We expect bigger houses than our parents had, or we you know we've had in the past. So uh, the floor space per person in Australia for for housing is eighty square meters per person. Um, mm. uh, in the US, it's seventy seven square meters per person. In the UK, guess what it is? Fifty. Thirty three. Yeah, so, yeah. so, I mean, we know that. The, so there we are, the evidence that houses are much smaller in the UK. But, I mean, just look at that. 80 square metres is what, what an Australian expects. And we don't want to compromise on that. So I guess, yes, if our bank's going to lend us more money and we can imp- improve our lifestyle, that's how we see we, we're going to spend it. And when you're with people, what, 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 what you, you then have, uh, I've forgotten the, I had a little expression for it some time ago, but uh, people, uh, paupers living in palaces because mm. they pay such a large amount of money to buy the property that they can't afford to buy anything else they're living in a palace and, and living the lives of paupers inside there they're eating spam uh, just just to be able to, to pay the school fees as well which are a private school fees and pay the mortgage so, so what actually ended up happening is we have an enormous rentier version on the economy because the amount of, of, of private debt household debt that that generated in that whole process so is there any substance to the argument that there's also a housing shortage is that is that part of the equation as well because i don't i don't see an inordinate amount of people without a roof over their head we do have a choice don't we we can live with our parents we can live in a flat share uh the choice of living on on our own is is perhaps an expensive luxury and and always has been so i mean that you know the market's play has its part to play there doesn't it it's determining you know how many people are going to be in the market for a house but there's not a shortage of houses it's just related to the price we're prepared to pay which as you say is related to how much money we can borrow from our bank and have the and this market becomes dysfunctional because of the very peculiar factors that affect it as a market versus the market for socks which is the sort of way we you know <laughs> it's easy to produce socks uh, the, the, the demand is virtually horizontal, very soil flies virtually horizontal or cheaper and cheaper. The more socks, the cheaper they get. And nobody buys more socks now because they expect the price to rise tomorrow. Uh, no, nobody speculates in socks. Nobody's hoarding socks. So these, the fact, the, the peculiar, if we don't acknowledge the peculiarity of the housing market, we're never going to solve the problem. And what I see with politicians saying it's all about supply, that is something which they can shout down from the, through the national government where the complaint is made to the local government and being the local government, which means it becomes a somebody else's problem and they can, they can go on and moan about it and do bugger all and look like they're being effective politicians. But Steve, you know, we often hear this argument that just isn't the land available. You know, we, uh, we mm. can't increase supply because... Uh, because uh, there's not the land in England, uh, 2.3% of uh, the total land area is built on. So basically, 98% is natural land. But even so, there's not the room to build houses. <laughs> yeah, but the, I mean, you, you do have the issue of, of, of that, that, is a, that is a genuine issue, okay? Because as you do have populations expanding, a town going from a million people to 20 million people, which is the sort of progress of London over the last century or so, I imagine, um, that means that people living in the centre. Uh, their prices are going to rise just because the cities become denser and you do have an issue of how far do you want to travel to get to work it's um, the old hoteling problem of the yeah. location matters as well as price so so there is a supply so, side there's there is a supply there is a supply issue, side to it but it's a but geographic it's, supply issue yeah it's geographic it's not it's not the the inability to produce uh housing it's 
it, and of course, that's why I think it is going to be fascinating to see what happens in terms of supply, because it isn't the, isn't the cost of the, la- the house that's it's a, the major determinant. It's the cost of the land, and that's driven up by the demand factors we're talking about earlier. Yeah, well, um, I mean, I, I mean, let's get back to your your example of the uh, of the the, the uh, Elizabeth line being built across mm-hmm. London. I mean, houses are expensive, but there's a lot of external costs of housing that are not covered by the owner or covered by the developer. Uh, there's the impact on congestion. There's the extra fuel mm-hmm. that's used. By having smaller households, there's, I guess, you know, if you're out of London, the opportunity cost of using up agricultural land, house prices don't include any of that. Society pays for that. Yeah. And in fact, in that sense, one of the um, one of the countries that's been best at managing household issues is actually Singapore, where a vast amount of the housing is actually public. Mm. So the whole move that Maggie Thatcher did to get rid of the public housing that the UK had, admittedly, some of the houses are pretty bloody ugly. I get a I get a chance to admire some of the housing blocks, you know, the old uh, council flat stuff, looking out my back window in Waterloo, but. Um, that relieved the pressure that we're now complaining about. And the whole idea of this, of the, of the deregulation back in 82, was to let you own your own house and to increase housing ownership. And as you say, it's actually fallen dramatically. So this is one of those cases of unintended consequences. Uh, but the unintended consequences have dramatically benefited the financial sector. And with their power now, uh, the if you actually want to address the problem you have to reduce the capacity of banks to finance housing bubbles and if you do that's all they finance so guess who's going to be coming after you with uh, with pitchforks well i'll tell you the clearest example of how much the financial sector is raking in through all of this you just have to look at uh, how much the house developers are making so barrett's is the biggest house builder in the uk it built 17,395 homes uh, last year well to the middle of 2017 it made a pre-tax profit of 765 million pounds which is actually one of the best years they've had for a while and they say you know thanks to the government's help to buy scheme for helping for for that one obviously mm-hmm. low interest rates part of it as well but if you take 765 million pounds and 17,395 homes that means they're making a profit of less than 45,000 pounds per house when the average house price in the UK is five times that. So, I don't know, 20% margin doesn't seem that's like a, a- No, that's, that's a pretty healthy margin. I mean, again, that's, that's, gonna, that's, that's, that's a lot better than the margins you'd get when you take in all the cost into account in being a manufacturer. Yeah, but that's the best they've got. It's not, I mean, it's mm. not completely a license to print money, is it? I mean, the, the rest of that, the other fourth-fifths, is going somewhere. Where's it going? Yeah, well, the, 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 the real... Um, People are making profit out aren't the aren't the builders of housing because that's actually a relatively minor part of the cost. It's the financiers of mm. housing who are making that money. Yeah, and that's the uh, that's the real reason that we've had this huge bubble. So if you want to, if you really want to address the changes, then you make changes about what banks can and can't lend money on, and that of course is something which is completely within the purview of the national political uh, parties and completely therefore they will avoid it like the plague and shove the problem down to the domestic area to the um, local government where they have no control and therefore no responsibility so your one word your pithy answer when you're pitched against a politician on a on a tv chat show and the politician comes up with this glib answer that uh, yes it's all about the supply of housing houses so expensive because uh, there's not enough supply what we need to do is work with local authorities across the uk uh, to try and increase that supply and on our problems will will go away and we're working on that what's your answer to that I sense that what you need to do is to then stop uh, letting banks lend as much money as they lend for housing, and you should sort of put a ceiling on the amount that can be lent based on the 
expected income earning capacity, not of the, uh, the, the person buying it, but the property itself. You link house prices to rentals. And right. if you do that, the problem disappears. Okay. Now, look, I know- Not quite disappears, but it does. Yeah. I, I know we, 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 we're sort of covering a lot of old ground today, but I wanted to cover it off because I did want to hit on the, uh, dispel that myth about supply, which we hear time and time again. I think hopefully we've mm. done that in the last 25 minutes. But, so. but before you go, Matt, I'm going to get one more little piece of data inside it because actually oh, yeah, yeah. while I'm talking, I brought up this data. And you, thank you for your data in the conversation as well. The level, the level of household debt to GDP in the UK- was 30% between 1970 and 1982. It peaked at 35% in 73, 75 and fell. So flatlining at 30% of GDP. As soon as the deregulation of, of, of housing lending went to enable banks to get in there rather than just building societies, it went on a straight line from 30% to 60%. By 1990, it dropped a bit during the recession that occurred there. And then when Blair gets back in power, uh, from 1997 until 2010, it rises from 55% to 95% of GDP. Then it's come down and now it's rising a bit again. So that entire increase in house prices was driven by a trebling of household debt. And what we've got out of this is not bricks and mortar, it's stones on your back that and, and, and to mean you, you're the slave of the banking sector. So, uh, final question then: How quickly now? Because we've said we're starting to see it fall, and uh, it's certainly falling in London. And uh, uh, I'm in Surrey. We're looking at buying a house, and we've seen how we're, we're holding off because house prices are definitely decreasing in value mm. here. So, mm. uh, so how quick? How much? And, and uh, you know, how, how over what time period is this fall going to happen? And how big is it? Well, that could be? happen over five years, but I don't expect a lot of a fall in UK house prices. Actually, to be my, my expectations are house price falls in Australia and Canada and so on, which avoided the crisis back in 2008 by continuing the housing bubbles. And they've got far higher levels of housing debt than the UK has. So I'm not expecting a precipitate fall in UK house prices. But what I am expecting is when it starts to happen, the politicians will dive in there to try to stop them falling because what house what politicians really like to have is expensive, affordable housing. <laughs> but I'm not quite sure what they do because it feels like they've pulled out all the strings in uh, in in Australia. They've offered the uh, financial incentives. They've said, yes, you can now use part of your super to, uh, to invest in property. What else can they do? Deregulate foreign ownership again and hope the foreigners come back in once more. <laughs> but yeah, the whole thing is handing it over the country to the banking sector. Yeah, clutching at straws, isn't it? All right, very good, mm-hmm. Steve. We'll talk to you again soon. Actually, it brings us on nicely because we're going to talk about sovereignty next time. So, okay. uh, uh, yeah, foreigners buying up our land. Uh, we'll talk about that next time. <laughs> See you soon. Okay. Well, not just that, actually. Just in this age of uh, international trade, just how much control do we have over our own economies? We'll look at that next time on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keane. I'm Phil Dobby. Thanks so much. Hope you've enjoyed it today. We'll see you again very soon. Thanks for listening. 
If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.